Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's episode of SFF yeah is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot's subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. Want great new science fiction and fantasy books to read but overwhelmed by all the publishing buzz? Let us help. Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes and what you're looking for and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine, so you can treat your shelf and support an indie too. And TBR is also available as a gift. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to SFF Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science fiction and fantasy. This is episode 88, and we're recording on September 18th. I'm Sharifa Williams, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you as usual from Book Riot. And today... We're doing the science fiction edition of Book vs. Movie, and we are talking about Ted Chiang's Story of Your Life, the short story, or novella, I guess, versus its adaptation, Arrival, which I'm is f- great. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so excited to do this because I've been thinking about this movie versus its short story since it came out, and I love that we came to it through different ways. Um, I yes. I read the short story first and then saw the movie when it came out. Yeah, and I did it the opposite way around. And this actually, I had always had it on my list to actually read the story, but, you know, it never happened. And so I was really excited and I have so many thoughts because I did not uh, realize the extent of the differences between the actual Cheng story and the adaptation. So I'm really excited to talk about it. Yay. Yay. All right. Well, before we get into our news, I will do a sponsor spot. How about? Our first sponsor is To Sleep in a Sea of Stars by Christopher Paolini. This is an epic new adventure from number one New York Times best-selling author Christopher Paolini. Uh, Kira Navarez dreamed of life on New Worlds, and now she's awakened a nightmare. During a routine planetary survey, Kira finds an ancient alien relic, but the elation of discovery turns to terror when first contact gets complicated. As war erupts among the stars, Kira is launched into a galaxy-spanning odyssey and to the very limits of what it means to be human. Earth and its colonies stand upon the brink of annihilation, and now Kira might be humanity's greatest hope. So obviously, y'all remember Christopher Paolini. He started writing The Inheritance Cycle, uh, Aragon, etc., when he was 15, 
And according to this information from the sponsor, he has leveled up and gotten a sweet beard and has written <laughs> his love letter to sci-fi. That's the funniest advertising copy note I think I've read in a while. Um, it is great. So, yeah, so this is an epic. It's a space opera. It explores some of the beloved tropes of sci-fi. And, uh, yeah, if you've been waiting for Christopher Paolini's next book, you've been waiting a while, but it is here. Um, apparently, there is also a cat named Mr. Fuzzy Pants. And oh. I feel like that is indeed important information that y'all the should know. The most important. The most important information <laughs> next to the sweet beard he apparently has now. Yes. <laughs> so that's To Sleep in a Sea of Stars by Christopher Paolini. Thanks so much for sponsoring the show and including those gems of talking points. <laughs> that was so good. Uh. All right. Let's see. All right. So it's me first. So news. What should we talk about? I will take a moment to talk. I mean, this is like adaptation central up in here. So let's take a moment to note that the Dune trailer dropped this past week uh, at the time of this recording. And I actually went on the Book Riot podcast to talk about it with Jeff. I believe that will be airing uh, well, it'll already be up by the time you listen to this. So you can hop over there to hear my full like 15 minute thoughts on it with Jeff. My short version is it looks beautiful, which does not surprise me. It also mm-hmm. looks like they're doing like the super gritty version of Dune, which isn't a huge stretch, but they've made some changes to Paul's affect, at least as far as I can tell from the trailer, uh, that are going to be interesting to see play out. Um, mm-hmm. Also, this trailer did not have enough Lady Jessica. That's Those are my thoughts about the trailer in, in a minute or less. <laughs> Those are good thoughts. I feel like gritty is the way people go in general with things these days, especially with like, it seems like any adaptation lately, they will always take the gritty road, the gritty grim dark road. It's it's still like a trend, I think. Yeah, that we're seeing. and it's not exactly like a happy-go-lucky book to begin no. with. It's pretty, you know, it's not, it's not. But also, there are ways to do it. In, there are different ways to do it. I mean, I wouldn't call the Sting version gritty necessarily, <laughs> although that's gritty. not exactly a vote for anything. <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyway, you should watch it. And like I said, uh, I will be on the Book Riot podcast talking about it in a little bit more depth with Jeff if you have any desire to hear more thoughts. So That's very cool. Yeah. Well, I am going to talk about this very exciting for all of you studious scholarly types out there, there is a world's first center for fan city. It's at the University of Glasgow and it's in Scotland. It sounds incredible and it sounds like it's the perfect setting for something like this to happen. So this is a research center, again, the world's first that is focused purely on the fantasy genre. So all of the classic fantasy you can think of, as well as things like board games, like games like Dungeons and Dragons are also approached at this research center. So the Center for Fantasy and the Fantastic is, I believe it's already officially, it's definitely launched by the time you're listening to this podcast recording. 
And it's going to supposedly bring together the biggest, it says, concentration of academics in the field who will study different expressions of the fantastic in literature, art, illustration, computer, and board games, as well as in film and television, which is a massive endeavor considering just how much of all of those things there are in the, the realm the realms of science fiction and fantasy. So I'm just hoping because, you know, whenever you see these descriptions of, of programs that confront science fiction and fantasy or explore the legacies of those two genres, you always see a lot of the usuals like Lord of the Rings and Outlander. And I hope that there is some sort of, my, my secret dream is that there is some sort of program or part of it that talks about, you know, more inclusive titles and projects and films, or just incorporates it into whatever they're researching, like, not its own thing, just incorporate that stuff in there. And it sounds like it's going to be like, when you look at the pictures in this article, it just sounds like the most if you can't go to a school for magic, this is kind of the next best thing just because of where it's at with in this building with like turrets and lots of rooms and it's very old and very cool looking. So I'm a little bit jealous that I can't myself participate and be a student again or <laughs> be a researcher or scholar uh, participating in this, but I'll be really curious to see how this program goes, how the launch goes, and what they actually study. Yeah, I do not want to go back to school, for the record. Mm -mm. But if anything was going to make me <laughs> want to go back to school, it's this. Um, I absolutely want to go study fantasy and write about it and think about it all day, all the time, forever. Uh, assuming, like you said, that they are getting outside of just Western fantasy and, and mm -hmm. being more inclusive. But yeah, this I am, I am super jealous <laughs> at this moment in time of everybody you know, who gets to attend that program. One day we'll just have to create our own program and Ooh. it'll be like anti-school but just basically a year-long magical fantasy party I in a amazing building <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm on board with this plan this hypothetical future plan uh, <laughs> sounds like the best thing ever okay let's see um while we're dreaming about that here is a cool thing we have talked about the continuing uh, broadening of accessibility in D&D &D on the show before, and a recent article on Gizmodo is profiling this awesome new development that there are combat wheelchair miniatures now for RPGs like Dungeons & Dragons. A designer named Sarah Thompson made a combat wheelchair D&D mod, and then it exploded on the internet, as is only proper. And some creators of miniatures got in touch with her about creating combat miniatures of wheelchair users. And now it's like you can buy them, you can play this mod. It's amazing. It's really super cool. The, the miniatures look 
fantastic. The mm-hmm. article shows uh, the mage and a warrior, um, and it's just so cool. Uh, I love this. I love this whole story. I love this interview. I highly recommend reading the whole thing that we'll link to in the show notes. It just, like... There's, you know, not an abundance of good news at the moment. And this was the kind of thing that just made me so happy to read about and to see happening. I love this. And all I have to say is that I 100% agree. They look so amazing. Yeah. Like, they look so cool. I've never, like, the world of having miniatures and mods and things like that and doing the whole, like, painting them yourself is Mm. such a... An, a foreign thing to me, but I looking at these, I totally see the appeal because they're so detailed. Yeah. And so like there's one where one of the characters is reading a book, which is just automatically <laughs> in my mind. So this is really great. I love this good news. I also needed it today. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> Kudos to all involved. Definitely check out the interview. Check out the mod. Check out the miniatures. Um, I also love just like as a side note, I loved the parallel that they drew between things like the Paralympics and then combat wheelchair mods. Like that's just, it's such a good point and it's such an interesting point. And I don't know. I just love everything about it. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's good stuff. Well, since we are talking about adaptations today and we had a lot of adaptations news come up recently in the world of sff i thought i would just round up a few of the newer stories that came out about some really exciting upcoming adaptations um, on the list and one of them is a book that i've been talking about a lot which is warcross by Marie Lu. And this one, I the first time I read this, I didn't really catch that it was going to be adapted into a TV series. For some reason, I think because in my mind, when I read this book, I actually may have mentioned this when I was talking about it. I definitely saw it as a feature film because it's just kind of perfect for that but I'm really excited like if you want to give me more of this story and these characters I'm totally cool with that so it's been optioned so it's in the earlier stages it's been optioned for a tv series and the people who are involved are talking about how visually dynamic and stunning the story is and how it's just perfect for adaptation and I 100% agree and I also think Emika Chen is one of the coolest characters you will come across so I'm really excited to see that character portrayed on screen and all of her group of buddies slash teammates who enter this world of virtual gaming where they've got this sort of high stakes competition happening as well as this plot of you know something something is happening there's some black market things happening and some things happening on the dark web so I'm really fascinated by this I can't wait to see how it develops over time another one is 
Michael Crichton, who is often in the news for adaptations. So many of his stories have been adaptable. And Sphere is actually a story that has already been adapted, but it's getting another adaptation treatment from HBO. And this one is also going to be a series rather than a film. So if you don't remember, this was a deep sea sort of first contact story where a team of you know scientists go down into this sort of abyss situation and they discover something strange and something that plays on their fears, which is a terrifying concept and really great for a really thrilling TV series or film, in my opinion. I don't even remember the original adaptation. I know I watched it. Yeah. But, you know, it sort of blends into the world of Michael Crichton adaptations for me, and it was a long time ago. Yeah. So exciting if you're looking forward to getting another Crichton adaptation. And then this one's sort of more of a side thing because Case and Calendar's adaptation isn't science fiction and fantasy, but we love them so much. And I just wanted to celebrate that they're getting a adaptation or TV series of Felix Ever After, which is a new book from them. So I know it's not specifically science fiction and fantasy. You can yell at me about that, but <laughs> I just wanted to celebrate. <laughs> yeah, Kaysen's work is amazing, and I hope this leads to more adaptations of their work for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I, too, am very excited about the Warcross news. That is such a cinematic series, and this is a good reminder to me that I never read book two, and I need to get on that because it is it does end. The first one ends on a huge cliffhanger. Um, and I can totally see how there's enough world to turn it into a TV show if they really want to, like, dive into it, which is fun. Um, on the Sphere yeah. news, <laughs> Amanda and I actually reread that book together maybe a year or two ago, just like oh. as a for funsies. And it is a hot mess. Uh, it is oh, no. <laughs> extremely full of stereotypes, as you might expect for a book that was written when it was written by who it was written mm -hmm. uh, by. And so it, it just, you know... But I, I, it was interesting to see that the the team adapting it includes Denise Thay from Westworld, and you know the idea that a woman who has worked on a show that has done some interesting things and updated the original source material in various ways is taking on this project gives me a little hope that they will maybe do some interesting things with the premise but not stick like super close to the original which would I think mm -hmm. be smart um, depending on what choices they make of course you never know but certainly the baseline premise is a great one and there is lots of interesting fodder there for playing with is what I will say yeah. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm not surprised by that news. Uh, so I will be curious to see how they change that up to, I think, or I like to hope that there's more awareness than there was, even when the last adaptation came out, because yeah. I, I remember it got a little bit panned, mm -hmm. that adaptation. And I do wonder if some of that was even just that the characters were a little stereotypical yep. and yeah whoopsie whoopsie <laughs> well that's it for our news 
And I'm going to tell you about our next sponsor before we start talking about the main business of the day, which is adaptations versus books. So today's sponsor is Athena's Choice, the award-winning bestseller, Athena's Choice by Adam Boostrom. What if a viral pandemic, uh-oh, put women in charge of the planet? Athena Vosh lives just like any other teenager from the year 2099. She watches reality shows with her friends, eats well, and occasionally wonders to herself, what would life be like if men were still alive? It's been almost 50 years since an experimental virus accidentally killed all the men on Earth. However, a controversial project is currently underway to bring men back. There's just one catch. The project has been sabotaged. This was described as one of the best books of 2019 by Kirkus Reviews. And as you might imagine, with a pandemic, it's pretty on topic, <laughs> very much in the news. But it, of course, it was written before the pandemic happened. So if that sounds like it's up your alley, and also if you are on NetGalley, if you're a NetGalley member, by the way, it's available free for a limited time, uh, both the audiobook and ebook. So definitely check it out. Again, that was Athena's Choice by Adam Boostrom. Thank you for sponsoring today's episode. All right. Arrival. All right. Yes. <laughs> I like, I feel like we should do, I'm just trying to think about this. I, and we always forget to do this. I feel like we should do like a non spoilery 101 introduction mm -hmm. of the, I guess, the short story first. It's interesting. Yeah, we can do the short story. Do you want to do the short story description and I'll do the arrival description? Yes. Okay. Either or. So, <laughs> so yes. Yeah, so this, so the movie Arrival was an adaptation of the short story, Story of Your Life, uh, which is in a collection called Stories of Your Life and Others by Ted Chang. And it is a not, it's a story that plays with, time in a couple of different ways, including that the structure of the storytelling is not linear. So it moves around in time and space. And it is about a linguist who gets called in by the U.S. government to talk to aliens. Like, aliens arrive on Earth and they, like, they are just suddenly there appear these giant sort of they end up calling them looking glasses these like mirror portal things um just appear randomly all over the planet there's like a hundred plus of them and uh and there are aliens like talking to us through these mirror portal things and so the government obviously is like well how do we talk to aliens so they bring in a linguist <laughs> and that's one of my favorite things about this story is that like how often do you get to see a linguist starring in an alien never. encounter never but it makes perfect sense like who else would talk to the aliens obviously it has to be a linguist like how else are you gonna learn to speak alien and that is literally what the story is about is uh, Louise Banks learning to speak heptopod. They end up calling the aliens heptopods, and she learns to speak heptopod. And it plays with this idea that language is also the framework for how you perceive the world. And it is also a story about being a parent. And I, 
And it's and I think one of the things that I loved about this so much when I first read it is that it's an incredibly subtle sort of quiet story, which, again, is not something you get a lot with a first contact story. We never find out why the aliens arrived. We never find out why they left. Uh, Really, all Louise knows is what her encounters with them were like and how it then shaped her life afterwards and it's not in these big dramatic ways it's in these very like almost soft quiet ways so it's a really mm-hmm. it's a really beautiful story uh, how is that how is that was that good that was perfect that okay. was perfect and so in arrival i will say most of that applies it is basically the same premise that aliens it's a first contact story again and we get the same characters. And of course, you know, Louise is the main character. And, but in the case of Arrival, it's some of that focus is on this big global event that's happening where everybody around the world is response is responding to the arrival of these aliens who arrive in actual ships, in UFOs that are huge. I believe in the story you were like the characters or the army was able to put a tent over the mirror. Mm-hmm. That would not be the case yeah. for this. <laughs> Huge ships come down to earth, plant themselves in various places around the world. It's much more of a blockbuster style movie in that you have a lot of you have like outbreaks of people panicking. And you kind of get to see that from news channel footage. And then you have a lot more, you have a lot more characters involved in the story. And there's a lot more thrills and explosions and intrigue. And so there's a lot more plotting and you do find out why the aliens arrived and what their purpose is in the movie, which is a very big difference. But in terms of how the movie plays with time as well, it also tried to capture that nonlinear style of, you know, flashbacks and storytelling. So it was really interesting coming to it from having watched the movie and then reading the story and i will say i definitely had a more emotional response to one versus the other because both stories are really there's some real tragedy there and it's just a gut punch either way especially i cannot imagine if i was a parent but even as a non-parent like i was just like (laughs) crying to myself both times yeah it is a sad story. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, let's get into spoiler territory because this is this is one of the biggest differences I think in the movie versus the book that I wanted to touch on. Mm-hmm. And so the in this this is a story about the loss of a child um, by a parent, and mm-hmm. they maintain that in both the book and the movie. And in the book, 
It's an accidental death when the daughter is like 25. And in the in the movie, it's like a rare disease that takes the kid when I think it's like a tween or teenage years is what's yeah. implied. Um, and I just I had some feelings about that. I was just like, man. I guess it's just the blockbusterization of a short story. Like they can't just it can't just be normal tragic. It has to be extra super tragic. Yeah, I was thinking about that as well. And I was trying to figure out why they would make that decision. And I think it probably is super tragedy that they need to have for whatever box office reasons. I'm sure there were all sorts of templates they had to fulfill in order to make it a successful hit at the theater or supposedly a successful hit at the theater. But my one thing, my one my one wondering, I guess, was maybe they did it as far as her age goes in order to make it, to trick us into not realizing that that Louise is older mm. in these flashbacks. Because mm. first of all, like if she's 25... I would feel like there would be, it would be more, you would be like, oh, well, she looks exactly the same. That seems right. a little bit odd. Like she just doesn't age. That's weird. That's a You know, fair once you point. figure it out. <laughs> yeah. And so that part, the age part of it was that, like, that was my thought that maybe that's why they went in that direction. I do think that this rare genetic disorder like that was that I still can't really figure out why they had to go in that direction except to make it super dramatic and it always seems like they have to have this moment you know where the kid is in the hospital mm -hmm. and you know I don't know I feel like it's just as tragic going to the morgue but yeah. for whatever reason they always have to have this moment in movies where it's like, well, you're going to the hospital, you're having your, you hear all the bleeps and bloops of the machines. And yeah, I, I was really curious about why they actually changed it. And I didn't, I didn't do like an extensive search to find out why, but I couldn't really see any specific reasoning there. No, I just assumed it was, you know, the Hollywoodization of a thing. And I, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think the central question of this story is, if you knew how things were going to play out in your life, would you do it anyway? And like, and it's not just like, oh, you know, I made this career choice or I married the wrong person. It's if you knew you were going to have a kid and your kid was going to die in your lifetime, like, would you have that kid anyway? And yeah, and that is and that is a really intense question, obviously. Um, and it feels to me like they were like, well, let's ratchet it up to 11, right? Like, let's crank it up to, like, not just that your kid is going to die in an accident, but, like, your kid is going to have, like, your kid is, you know, from day one, like, doomed by this rare disease. Um mm -hmm. Even though ultimately it doesn't make a difference, right? Like, I, I mean, I guess maybe it does make a difference. I don't know. It, it, 
Either way, you are willingly walking forward into a tragic moment, which is such an interesting, I mean, such a hard and poignant question to be asking. And, and you know, Louise's conclusion is that, like, yeah, she, she knows what's going to happen. And she's going to do it anyway, wholeheartedly, um, mm-hmm. which is just like, oh, it gives me, I, I mean, I get the goosebumps talking about it. <laughs> I know, I know. And I, I would say... My only thing about the difference between this sort of freak accident, which I think was like a rock climbing accident maybe, and this disease is that there – to me at least, there is a difference. And I don't know if this is – this was part of why the rock climbing accident was chosen in the story, but there is a difference to me – between something that is literally just, I would almost posit like, well, maybe if some slight adjustment changed in the course of their lives, this, like she wouldn't, maybe she put her foot or whatever, her hand a millimeter away from where it would have been or something, which possibly ruins the whole point of the story, that the concept that, that Louise could possibly be looking for ways in which the future would change because I don't I don't really think that is the point but to me there is a difference for myself between this truly freak accident and something you are literally you're just born with you are genetically born with this thing so. yeah yeah. One of the other things I just wanted to mention as well in relation to this idea and to the death of her daughter is that I couldn't tell for certain if Louise told Donnelly about her daughter's future and told him in the story that their daughter would die one day and in the movie it's very specifically addressed in a scene that she did tell Donnelly that their daughter was going to die and that was the reason he left her and that's why he's not really in their life that much anymore and doesn't even interact with their daughter in the same way that's addressed more explicitly in the movie and I don't know if that also changed some of, like, it also brings in the question of, so Louise is making this decision about having her child knowing what's going to happen to her daughter, but then there's this other person involved with that story and with that timeline, like, very directly involved Uh, as the father of the child. So I thought that that was an interesting difference as well, because even if it is addressed in the short story, I can't remember it, so... It it wasn't, it wasn't. It's never named whether or not she tells her the father um which is i also did think about that when i I was re-watching bits of the movie to refresh my memory about the differences uh this past week and i was like oh yeah you don't know in the story if she's told him or if he knows um because he's also you know spoilers we're way deep into spoiler territory but he also has (laughs) has learned heptapod um so like maybe 
he too already knows and maybe he doesn't, we don't know for sure. And and yeah. I do think that's a really valid question is if you have knowledge of a thing that's going to impact somebody else in a really intense way and you don't share that knowledge, like, are you taking that choice away from that person? Like, what... What is your responsibility in that situation? And these are all, this gets into what I love about this story, which is this idea that, you know, language is perception and perception shapes reality. And like, if you could perceive all of your life, all of the moments of your life at any sort of moment, then yeah, like what happens to free will? What happens to how you move through the world? And and I, I think the story, because it can be, is much more explicit about what that means for Louise and that like she is just sort of accept that, that accepts that you perform the act, you know what's going to happen. Yes. And so you're performing your role in these things, like willing, like your choice is to perform the actions that you already know are going to happen. And I don't think the, I don't know how you would have done this in the movie, (laughs) honestly. (laughs) I don't either because that concept, when I came across it in the story, broke my brain. Right? I was like, but how? How do you go about it? Like, how do you know what's going to happen and basically do this performance and recite your lines? Like, how how do you let that happen and how could you not try to mess with things because in the story in the in the movie it's kind of more of a louise as this code breaker and there's more emphasis on the fact that she is this chosen one who has figured out how to speak heptapod and even though later on it becomes a thing where she writes a book about the language and everything, the idea of people in the story, the other scientists had also cracked the code and figured out the language and also had the experience, but they were just doing the same thing, reciting their lines. And I was like, but how does how is there nobody <laughs> who's like, well, I'm about to mess things up. I'm about to like kick the dominoes aside right. and try to change the course of my future or whatever, because to me it's such a it's such a foreign idea and the idea of knowing your fate and this concept of whether or not you have free will. Yeah. In my mind I'm like can humans even can we even handle that? Can our brains even right. handle the heptapod language or if this happened in reality would we just start bleeding out of our nose I was and just drop gonna down? say like your brains would just like dribble out of your ears like you yeah. would just not be able to I don't know I mean you know what is the famous thing like we're only using like 10% of our brain or something mm-hmm. like maybe there's parts of our brain that could do it and this is this is again what I think is so cool about Ted Chang's work because this whole collection by the way is highly worth reading like you should everybody should read all of the stories in it because his range is huge first of all they're all really different and distinct from each other and the concepts that he's playing with are just so freaking interesting and this is like what sci-fi and fantasy does it's like it asks these questions like well what if 
we encountered an alien race who like perceived time as nonlinear and what if you could learn their language right and like it just goes in all of these fascinating directions and you're just like yeah what would that look like and the genius of the story i think is that it breaks it down to this one choice like if you could perceive time in a nonlinear fashion would you still do this thing that you knew would be painful for you and like louise's answer is yes so like that i think that's genius too like breaking it down into like like let's forget the giant huge ramifications of this let's let's talk about this one choice um Mm -hmm. and it makes it sort of like it makes my brain able to handle it and and to connect with the idea in a way that I think you would you would lose if it was a more abstract choice that she was making or even a more actiony choice like in the in the movie right she like she learns this phrase, and I want to say Mandarin, um, you know, to prevent the Chinese general from going to war and yeah. and like messing everything up. And 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 so she saves the day because she like, you know, interacted with the aliens in a way that nobody else did. And she she harnesses that to like save the world more or less. Um, and and that is a blockbuster movie move. And I get it. Like, I get it. <laughs> but I honestly, I find the the question of the story much more compelling and interesting because it is such a human daily life, almost like mundane feeling choice. But also it is a life changing choice. So... Yeah, I feel like it's relatable and I believe it's just because if you have any sort of loved one who's very close to you, the concept of going through the grieving experience to know what it feels to lose somebody in that way is just, it's a terrifying thing that just about everybody in the world goes through. Yeah. So it's very relatable and it the question itself will tear you apart in thinking about, well, you know, would you also be willing to follow through? And could you possibly go through that grief again? Are the are the moments that you share together worthwhile enough to, to make the grieving process, the grieving part of it, worthwhile to make it worth living through again and and yeah it was a very clear answer in this case and it was a punch in the gut but it was also understandable especially Mm -hmm. since in the story you get so much you I felt felt like I got more about the relationship between Louise and her daughter in the story like it was more it was richer to me yes and it was so it went all over the place and it was such a a great snapshot of this really special bond between mother and daughter and that's why knowing the decision she made was that much more powerful because it's like well yeah I can see why she would make that choice because these were some like beautiful and complex and wonderful moments they shared together. Mm-hmm. Ugh, 
God. Yeah, right? It just it's so it's so heartbreaking, it's so moving, and it's so interesting from a science and linguistics and like a sort of academic standpoint. And that's another thing I love about this story is that it like is such a great balance of the hard science as it were and then mm-hmm. the human emotion. Like we we talk a lot about, you know, the divisions between like cozy or character driven sci-fi and then hard sci-fi but they're not they don't have to be mutually exclusive you can have both a good writer does both and ted chang is such a good writer so good and i learned that he spent five years learning linguistics before he wrote this story is that true i did not look up i confess i didn't look up backstory on that that's amazing i randomly saw it in wikipedia and of course had to click over to the actual interview because you can't believe everything on wikipedia but he literally says it he said he was he immersed himself in linguistics for that long before writing this and that is some dedication and i I feel like it shows because there were lots of words in this story that were also used in the movie, which was great, that I had to look up and wrap my brain around just to figure out what was going on because it all sounded very smart and very real. Yes. So kudos to him for getting that deep in it to come up with this story that is very sciencey and very cool and linguisticy for the word nerds. Yeah. I will say so like obviously we've, you know, picked apart bits of the movie. I do think it's a I I mean as, you know, sci-fi first contact movies go, it's actually a lot less blockbustery and smarter and more subtle than they tend to be because, mm-hmm. you know, with this kind of source material, I think some of that does carry through. So while they did, you know, Hollywoodize the original material, it's not so far of a step that you can't still see the beauty of this concept at work. I mean, they I do think they maintained that, um, which is yeah. great. And and, you know, I, I think if you uh, I think I think that, you know, the movie is so enjoyable in a lot of ways and is a really interesting addition to the, you know, movies about first contacts in that it's not a violent alien race or you know there's not some big weird ulterior motive they're not trying to colonize the planet like you know what i mean it's not independence day just as a for example (laughs) and even though there are like some more explosions there's actually dramatically less explosions than are normal in an alien movie so i you know for that i like i will give them props for even like deciding to adapt what was undoubtedly difficult to put together in a film form like you can the things that he could do because he was writing this story um you can't do like you said in the visualization like how old does louise look like that's a thing i didn't even consider but it's so true the visual uh translation of this is tricky and so you know they do get points in my book for deciding to do it at all and doing a pretty good job with it Yeah, I absolutely agree. I really enjoyed it the first time I watched it without having knowledge of the short story. And I definitely still sat during the credits when I rewatched it because I was deep in my feelings in the same sort of in a similar way. And I, I just really enjoyed how visually stunning it was, too, because I mean, there is the difference between 
the aliens being shown in a sort of mirror and having these giant spaceships and what that looked like across the world. Like, that obviously affects me. I'm not yes. totally insensitive to these these tricks. And I did also read in my journeys through looking up the movie that there there was pushback um, and there were rejections for this adaptation because people first of all wanted it to be more blockbuster like and they wanted a male protagonist <laughs> they wanted to switch up louise which made in, made me incensed i was fuming and they they didn't want those flashbacks wow and so they basically the pe- didn't want the movie <laughs> they didn't want exactly. the story <laughs> exactly and the director was like well they obviously had no idea what the story was about right. so we just waited to, until we found the right place for it so i'm really pleased also that they they went this route and they made this movie because i love that it exists in the world i love that there is a first contact movie about a linguist and i think louise's character and the conundrum she faces is so unique and so compelling. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, I can't say it any so better good. than that. I feel like that's <laughs> I feel like that's it. That's the story. <laughs> that's the story. Definitely I will definitely everybody read the short story. Um uh, even if you read if you listen to this and got the spoilers, it is so so worth your time. Watch the movie as well. It's really it's just a great like weekend movie as well, I think. Yeah. Agree. So, yeah, I'm going to be reading the rest of that collection. I have it from the library still, so I'm very excited. And mm. that's it for us. SFF Yeah is sound edited by DR Baker. Many thanks to them for making us sound great each and every episode. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening. You can email us as usual at sffyeah at bookriot.com. And if you have a moment, please review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us. We love to hear from you. You can find us online. Where can they find you, Jen? Mostly on Instagram these days at I am Jen IRL. That's I A M J E N N I R L. And you can find me on Instagram at S Zainab Williams. That's S Z A I N A B Williams. Until next time. Bye.